will start. Uh, I don't know if I should start with the positive news or negative news right in the beginning. Let's start maybe with the in-between one. And um, hope everyone is fine and safe here in New York. You kind of have to stay indoor to be safe. Uh, the air quality is very bad because of the wildfires. So, uh, yeah, uh, this will probably be the <clears throat> new normal. There's a lot of forest left to burn upstate and in Canada. So we don't do anything about that. I don't think this will turn back to normal soon. So, uh, yeah, and if you want to come up to the stage, comment, share maybe some news you think is interesting, please join me on stage. Um, and, yeah, we will go from there. So, um, yeah, welcome everyone to Science Society. Today is the Science Newsroom, where we go over articles that recently came out and we read them a little bit together and then we can maybe also decide uh, based on the feedback if we try to invite the researchers that did the research and learn a little bit more from them so but today is more an overview kind of day so uh yeah let's uh start with a in with a kind of good one and um <clears throat> so uh they discovered uh, more than 5,000 new species in a spot where, um, in the deep sea, where they wanted to mine in the Pacific. Um, and surprisingly, a wealth of biodiversity has been found in the Clarion Clipperton zone, an area earmarked for exploitation by mineral firms, <coughs> where scientists have discovered more than 5,000 new species living in the seabed in an untouched area of the Pacific Ocean. It has been identified as a future hotspot for deep sea mining, according to a review of the environmental service done in the area. This is a very mineral rich area of the ocean floor that spans 1.7 um, square meter miles between a uh, million square meter miles between uh, Hawaii and Mexico in the Pacific and has been comprehensively documented. The research will be critical to assessing the risk of extinction of the species, giving contracts for deep sea mining in the near pristine area, um, and they appear imminent. Um, most of the animals identified by researchers exploring the zone are new to science, and um, almost all are unique to the region. Only six, including a carnivorous sponge um, and a sea cucumber, have been uh, seen elsewhere. Um, so these contracts for mining exploitation have been granted to 17 deep sea mining contractors in that area. And uh, the companies backed by countries including the UK, US and China want to exploit minerals, including cobalt, manganese and nickel in part to sell to the <clears throat> alternative energy sector. Um, in July, uh, the International Seabed Authority, a quasi-UN body based in Jamaica, 
that regulates deep sea mining will begin accepting exploitation applications from these companies. To better understand the impact of mining in this fragile ecosystem and its newly discovered inhabitants, an international team of scientists has uh, built the CCZ checklist by compiling all the records from expeditions to the region. Published in the journal Current Biology, it includes 5,578 different species, of which an estimated 88% to 92 have never been seen before. We share this planet with all these amazing biodiversity, and we have a responsibility to understand it and protect it, um, says the deep sea ecologist at the Natural History Museum, Muriel Rabon, and she's the paper's lead author. Um, to study and collect specimens from the ocean floor, biologists have joined research cruises in the Pacific and sent remote controlled vehicles uh, traverse the seabed uh, 4,000 to 6,000 meters below. Um, and um, <clears throat> most recently, on the UK Smartex expedition, described it as an incredible privilege to be part of this. And this was funded by the Natural Environment Research Council and others, and is backed by UK Seabed Resources. Yeah, so um, it's really interesting. Please check out the link. There are pictures uh, showing these different, a few of these different um, inhabitants. And um, yeah, it's kind of interesting that we keep discovering more species and we hope we are doing that before we kill them all um so yeah let's see what happens to the mining um who decides what is worth more some mining or these uh, very unique species we will see maybe we'll learn maybe we'll just keep doing what we've been doing and killing everything um okay does anyone have a comment please raise your hand leave it in the chat uh if not we can move on to the next article I'll... okay good then um let's get an interesting positive one And then we'll a technology one. New storm in a box device um, creates electricity <clears throat> from thin air. Scientists in the US have developed a device that can harvest humidity in the air to create clean electricity supply. A team of engineers at the University of Massachusetts Amherst has been making clean electricity from thin air. Um, according to the university, nearly any material can be turned into a device that continuously harvests electricity from humidity in the air. The key lies in being able to fill the material with nanopores less than 100 nanometers in diameter. These researchers have dubbed it the generic air gen effect. 
in the paper it is explained air humidity is a vast sustainable reservoir of energy that unlike solar and wind is continuously available so also at night when the sun doesn't shine but until now exploring the energy potential of air has been co a complex process requiring for any i'm sorry it just changed i'm really sorry stuff pops up and changes the side for whatever reason okay it keeps happening yeah um it doesn't work i'm sorry this and i haven't oh now it works for a second so um yeah i i don't know this article doesn't work but apparently it's possible and humidity is something that is constantly available so um Um, so yeah, it it will be because with solar energy and wind and so on, we have fluctuations of energy supply, but humidity, at least in um, some regions, is a constant uh, supply of energy, basically. And um, yeah, if we can scale this, this would be really quite wonderful. So I hope somebody picks it up and scales it. And let me check out the link you shared, Dr. Ohm. Uh, no, we haven't. Let me pin it to the top and we can read about it. I mean, I I read already before um, uh, that about molecular mechanisms. Um, but not this one. Thank you for sharing, Dr. Olo. So psychedelics promote plasticity by directly binding to BDNF receptor track B. It's really interesting because um could also explain really well why why it has um implication you know track b has a and bdnf have a lot of implication in compulsive behavior um so that's really interesting um psychedelics produce fast and persistent uh, antidepressant effects induce neuroplasticity resembling the effects of clinically approved antidepressants and we recently reported that pharmacological diverse antidepressants including fluoxetine and ketamine act by binding to track b the receptor for bdnf here we show that lsd and psilocin uh, directly bind to track b with affinities a thousand fold higher than those for other antidepressants and that psychedelics and antidepressants antidepressants bind to distinct but partially overlapping sites within the transmembrane domain of track B dimers. The effects of psychedelics on neurotrophic signaling plasticity 
an antidepressant-like behavior in mice depend on track B binding and promotion of endogenous um, BDNF signaling, but are dependent of serotonin to alpha receptor activation, whereas LSD-induced head twitching is dependent on um, 5-HT2A. Why do they say weather? Whereas, I don't know. And independent of track B. Oh, okay. Binding. Our data confirm track B as a common primary target for antidepressants and suggest that high affinity track B a positive allosteric modulators lacking uh, to alpha activity may retain the antidepressant potential of psychedelics without hallucinogenic effects. Yeah, that's interesting. That would be really great because the problem is, <clears throat> Dr. Ola, if you want to come up and, and comment, but um, the, the problem is with using the pure um, LSD basic in clinic, because of all these other effects that are too dangerous to treat people outside of the clinic. So it's really hard to scale, basically. Um, you have to have a very controlled environment for people. So if you can take that effect out and just uh, dissect out the positive effects, that would be really perfect. Yeah, welcome. Thank you for coming, Dr. Olo, and sharing. Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks Thanks for talking about it. it. I thought it was a really interesting paper and it's gotten a lot of attention because people are very interested in, in harnessing the antidepressant effects of psychedelics without um, some of the, the downsides that you mentioned. But I think it's really interesting because from a sort of um, phenomenological or experiential point of view, there are a lot of people that think that the hallucinogen hallucinogenic aspects of it is actually crucial to clinical response. So it's an interesting kind of uh, divide between the sort of molecular mechanistic um, sort of dissection of antidepressant from hallucinogenic effects versus what some patients experience and what even some uh, researchers have reported is that, you know, the, um, the clinical response seems to be related to things like feelings of oceanic boundlessness and other, um, you know, more um, sort of trippy experiences. So it's 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 going to be interesting to see how how this pans out if they are able to develop things that are specific for this um you know receptor and then there are some other people cautioning that if you specifically just develop drugs that might target this receptor it could have a lot of bad off target effects leading to um um i think it's it's been associated in some cancer uh pathology as well by activating this track b uh receptor so um, sometimes by trying to um, be very reductive and trying to isolate, you know, the key um, ingredient in a, in a treatment, you might be actually uh, removing what makes the treatment effective. So to be determined. Yeah, I had this discussion, you know, the institute I was in before, Nathan Klein Institute, we had a grant, we had money from a company <clears throat> to do experiments like this, you know, they wanted to also, this company wanted to also develop basically just the positive effects and, and which compounds basically would do that. And we would test it in, in mice and, and look at it. Um, the, but I had exactly this discussion that I also said, you know, the reports from people say that this uh, feeling of staying connected 
is so important if you can do that and also yeah track b bdnf can also have very negative effects yeah like you said tumor but you know it's always a balance you can then also too much you know you can have compulsion uh it depends on what you know what where you enforce this and um we will have to see if we can just really take out this one compound then it will have this widespread effect of kind of leveling the field and i i there was a there's a really good bbc discovery episode the latest one that talks about exactly this i think it's imperial college london and they do clinical trials and there were people talking you know patients and the researchers talking and he said basically he explained it like this and then severe depression and other disorders you kind of are in a valley of death or whatever and you can't get out like um your thoughts are kind of in a deep valley that are stuck and you keep having these thoughts and what psychedelics do is leveling the field again basically so you have the chance of climbing up the valley again um and um and then this patient said that they only realized after years and years of depression that they had this 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 connection from everything and no self-love at all like no respect or self-love like not even connection to themselves feeling and that that all of a sudden changed with this experience and it lasted for like three months <clears throat> and then they had you know they they had to take it again but they have now again this possibility in their head of self-compassion and getting out of these episodes i thought that was uh it, it's a really i i really recommend listening to that and yeah we will see how it will work i think we can only try and then have hope and see if we can develop something yeah i'll have to check that out it also kind of aligns with some of the work i think initially out of imperial college um robin carhart harris I think before he went to UCSF, did some neuroimaging studies on the effect of psychedelics and found um, particular uh, patterns of connectivity that changed where you saw, um, if you look at how the brain is organized as a network, it's typically organized into different subnetworks or modules related to different functions. Um, and the brain as a network balances between the sort of modular structure and also uh, a highly efficient structure where there's connections between modules. And after um, psychedelics, uh, there were a lot more connections in between modules. So that sort of modular structure broke down a little bit and there was a lot more connectivity across modules in addition to within modules. And then the other change that occurred was, um, and this kind of, when you're talking about this sort of feeling of being stuck that the patient described, it reminded me of this change that occurs when you look at um, the sort of signal properties from functional MRI. You can look at the randomness or the regularity of that signal over time. Um, and a highly regular signal is, is, is a low entropy signal. And, um, and that's not good, but, and you can't have a too high entropy signal either because that's chaos. But what they found was that the psychedelics actually increase this entropy, which tended to be lower in patients with depression, which may be reflective of this subjective feeling of being stuck.
Yeah, thank you for sharing that um, that um, that additional information with the with the entropy and um, that too much is chaos. You know, there's this balance that is so important, which is really interesting. I've read another um, article about resilience, but I, it's a while ago with too high or too low cortisol levels and the effect of, um, you know, breaking down basically in stressful situations and um, both is bad kind of. Um, so, you know, there's always this balance that is important and it, that's why it's so hard to find a treatment that works for everyone. I think in the future we have to get probably way more granular and figure out what what fits for different subcategories of, of patients, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, we're thinking about trying to initiate some psychedelic studies um, in our uh, own lab. Um, we collaborate with, I think, did you have uh, Mark Rasnick speak in one of your rooms? Um, yeah, yeah, we yeah. have. So yeah, so we're collaborating with him. Um, he has this uh, lipid wrapped assay that looks at kind of similar to the paper that you've shared, um, looking at the cellular actions of antidepressants. And he found that um, LSD shares the same property of uh, translocating these um, uh, G proteins from lipid rafts um, into um, uh, other parts of the cellular membrane where it can actually um, activate adenylyl cyclase and generate cyclic AMP. Um, and so we're trying to look at that um, sort of uh, cellular marker of antidepressants and link it to what they do at the level of neuroimaging. And we're hoping to do that um, with psychedelics. Yeah. That's really interesting. I think that's really interesting because I had, there was a while when I w did a lot of compulsion work where there was a lot of discussion about these lipid rafts and then in the different pathways um, and then, you know, high compulsion models versus, you know, healthy, kind of healthy mice. And, uh, but we never got then in the end to really focus on that. So I have to read about that. That's really interesting because there was a lot of discussion about this. Yeah, Serena, go ahead. Yeah, there is an interesting hypothesis that the um, if if you're liberating the receptors from the lipid rafts, they can have improved activation kinetics. Um, I was always wondering yeah, when I was studying them, you know, that it seems to be their basis is an additional hydrogen bonding network that stabilizes them. And, um, you know, you'd reduce kinetics for, you know, the members of those rafts. But I was always wondering in light of, you know, say the omega-3 fatty acids improving activation kinetics. Um, so it's fascinating that you would actually be looking at a mechanism of liberating receptors from the lipid rafts into uh, the larger membrane as, an, as a basis for improvement of their activation that's fascinating makes a lot of sense yeah mark mark rasnick has published several several papers on this looking at it 
in vitro. And then I think what he talked about in uh, Katerina's room was they looked at it in blood samples from patients with depression and found that it was um, associated with the severity of depression, um, basically the activation of adenylocyclase. And then um, it also correlated with treatment response. So the idea is that this is a cellular, uh, basically a plasma marker of um, depressive state as well as um, a predictor of treatment response. And ideally what, what Mark is trying to get towards is being able to do a kind of um, assay in the lab with uh, a patient's blood where you could, um, in a dish, sample whether, you know, what antidepressant would work best for that patient. So you don't have to go through trial and error, which is what we currently use um, in our clinical practice. So it is an observation that um, a, a lipid raft abundance is uh, associated or correlated with depression? Well, having these G proteins uh, translocated around the lipid raft. So basically, if they're mobilized, uh-huh. they, right. that's what antidepressants do. But that, that lack of mobilization is, is associated with depression. Oh, that's fascinating. I hadn't heard that's been established. That's really cool. Makes so much sense, actually. Yeah, it was really, it was really impressive work, like um, this blood test. It's basically, you know, if the tr- depression gets better, you know, the, the the you can you have a blood test basically that shows that, like you have actual data. Because I think the problem is that people think it's all just in their head, that if you have actual a blood sample test that shows that, I think that can help a lot of people to realize. Also, that it's, you know, a real physiological disease. <laughs> I don't know why people think just because it's in the brain, it's not a real disease. You know, there's still this going on. So that I think that's another really important part that this blood test kind of addresses. So, yeah, it was really great. Yeah, I hope to have you. You were also there in the room, so maybe you guys can come back one day. I know you also published recently. Dr. Olo, really great work. So yeah, whenever you have time to talk about it, um, yeah, should come. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be happy. I think I I posted it in the in the house um, uh, group page. But yeah, we just published a paper in translational psychiatry on our um, AI therapy chatbot for depression and anxiety. I'd be happy to come back and talk about that anytime. Yeah, yeah, let me know when you have time. I think it's really it's really wonderful and we should spread the word. When will it, you know, will you guys make it kind of available for people to use? Or uh, We're still a couple of years away from that. We're right now, um, so what we published was a pilot study in about 60 total patients. We're currently doing a study in 200 uh, participants uh, comparing the use of the app to in-person problem-solving treatment to make sure that what we've what we've developed in the app is at least as good as what you would experience with a uh, an actual live therapist. Yeah, that's really wonderful. Yeah, whenever you know you think it's appropriate, we we can we can talk about it in a room um, because I think it's really important work. So yeah, congrats. Okay, uh, do, 
does anyone have something they would like to share? Uh, a, a article, paper, something, um, or comment on the current um, topic? If not, we can move on to maybe another health uh, article that I thought <clears throat> was interesting and lately in the news a lot. Um, I'm posting the link, but... Oh, hi, Dr. Heidi, how are you? Did you want to Hello, comment? Uh, yeah, just a quick comment. I just want to uh, thank Dr. O for uh, taking us on a nice journey with um, the great... Um, and I, I feel it's a, actually a novel area in science, which people and scientists need to pay attention to the brain-derived neurotrophic factor uh, or the BDNF. Um, I shared with you actually the atlas of um, the protein expression and from the genetic side, you know that I'm biased for genetics because my, my degree in phylogenetics. So um, some interesting research, but it's a very limited, about 17, um, 17 up to now research and it's not a lot of clinical research on it um, talking about the gene expression and i feel this is um area people should focus on in the future and now in terms of neuroplasticity and hybrid intelligence so the intelligence between the ai and humans lots of uh, circuits synapses and um, looking at those gene expressions how it's forming uh, it will be um, a life changing for all of us. So thank you so much for um, shedding the light on this area of research, which really we need a lot of scientists to focus on and uh, tell us how we're going to go in uh, the future with neuroplasticity and epigenetics and how we can cha change our mind and the atlas of our minds, not only our proteins and genes. Thank you. This is Heidi and I'm complete. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I agree. It was a great article because you, you always mentioned the 3D um, dimensions. And there was a really interesting article recently. I'll try to find it um, after this one uh, that basically that the 3D structure of the brain gives clues about um, different characteristics of the person. Um, you know, it was always kind of hypothesized, but they showed it um, in a paper now. <clears throat> that is really interesting because it kind of goes both ways, I guess, you know, from the micro level, uh, from the microscopic level or genetic level. We had the guest speaker here that showed a model where he could basically conclude from the DNA sequence um, um, how the 3D structure of the DNA uh, would look like under different conditions and the model was getting quite accurate and they would do more in the future you know combined with epigenetics and so on um, so and then on on the other hand you have then basically how the 3d structure then of the brain itself also um, gives us so we can go from top down to bottom up from both sides i guess um, which is really interesting
and will probably in the future if we combine all those models um, become really accurate um, so yeah I don't know if you heard this in the news um, you know about this article um, that uh, they, there has been an increase of younger people getting colorectal cancer than uh, what people usually, you know, at a younger age than what people usually get uh, screened yearly. So, and uh, the study um, says that the type of bacteria, fungi, and viruses in the colorectal cancer tumors varies significantly between younger and older patients. Uh, which um, apparently offers a clue towards understanding why cases are rising in people under 45, according to a study due to <clears throat> be presented um, at next week. So this is now probably they present. Yeah, this was May 26. So they presented it at the American Society of Clinical Oncology. Um, so why it matters, while the incidence of colorectal cancer in the U.S. has declined overall, it's risen dramatically among patients under 45 since the mid-1990s. In many cases, the cancer is more aggressive in those younger patients than in its older patients. A lot of people blame obesity and diabetes, but um, we have these patients who run marathons and they eat healthy, and they've um, got very advanced colorectal cancer. <clears throat> and the study points out possible bacterial factors. Um, there was some sort of exposure, we think, in the 1970s and 1980s. Maybe everybody started taking antibiotics for ear infections or they stopped breastfeeding. Something happened where this cohort um, is seeing this rise. Uh, we don't know why. Other studies, including one published this week in Nature Medicine, have examined the presence of bacteria in metastatic colon cancer. But Weinberg said this research team specifically wanted to look at the differences between age groups. The goal ultimately is to try to explain why younger people are getting these tumors in the first place and try to figure out biologically is there some difference. They sequenced the microbial DNA samples from the tumors of colorectal cancer patients who were either under 45 or over 65. And um, they plan to look at differences between the two age groups in the presence of a specific bacteria known as Fusobacterium nucleatum within the samples. But they found it about 30% of the time in both age groups. Instead, they saw a difference with the fungi Cladosporium, which appeared more often in the tumors of early onset colorectal cancer patients. A series of other bacteria were more common in the tumors of older patients, not found at all in younger patients. Between the lines, it's a small study covering 63 patients, but it was robust with uh, its inclusion of survival data. Tumor genetic information and diet questionnaires results from patients indicate there is more to the connection between bacterial flora and colorectal cancer progression. The researchers also plan to study how the circulating microbes that could be picked up in the blood sample correlates with bacteria in the gut and in tumors. It's this interplay between your environment, what you eat, your diet, and your immune system, and whatever genetic predisposition you have 
of two inflammation. It's a way of measuring all three simultaneously and asking is that what's producing this unfavorable environment that uh, these cancers can grow. Yeah, I think studies like this are really important. And um, so I hope they come up with a blood test um, that younger people, you know, can just take whenever they get a blood test anyways. And um, have kind of this preventive care hopefully so i thought that was kind of promising no comments okay <laughs> it's interesting they cited the bacterial resistance might um in the antibiotics might be a factor i keep wondering when the pharma industry is going to finally decide the business model makes sense and get serious about new antibiotics. I've been hearing the evidence has been overwhelming for the bacterial resistance since the, certainly the 90s, but much earlier. But um, I think they're, uh, they must just be, you know, waiting until we all get much worse to take it seriously. I don't know, maybe that's a cynical view, but <laughs> I mean, yeah, we had speakers here. They developed amazing new antibiotics, but um, the industry is not picking them up because regular antibiotics are just too cheap and it's not enough people still that need those, so it doesn't make sense. But hi, Tom. How are you? Did you want to add something to this? Hi. Um, yeah, it, I, it's, I'm glad to be able to finally join and listen to one of your groups uh, I'm typically at work, but uh, the postdocs and research scientists at uh, University of Washington are striking. <laughs> so, interestingly, I have some time off. But um, anyway, the the um, the article is really interesting, and I actually did come across that, and um, I sort of wanted to come up to um, maybe not really share wisdom, but maybe share my thoughts. Um, about it and also uh, discuss with you all uh, about it. And one thing that uh, has always been discussed uh, amongst um, a lot of microbiologists is that there are so many different species um, and in the gut. And um, although we do agree that um, the presence of the um, say, Fusobacterium or the um, Cladosporidium uh, may play a role, but it also may be the absence of some other microbial group that results in the cancer because they stop, um, they, they are not there to inhibit the growth of these other microbes. And, um, and therefore, the chemical transformations of the different hormones and so forth can also cause the signaling. So um, definitely very fascinating, but um, I sometimes think and I get all confused because uh, which one is the chicken and which one is the egg. But having said that, I think I'm glad that people are trying to take a first step uh, to see whether it's a causation or correlation. So thank you very much. It's an interesting observation that it's really a a full system population dynamic effect, both you know 
Or it could be either the presence of something innocuous or the absence of something preventative. Yeah, I, um, and we seem to, that seems to be the trend, right? In microbiome research is it's, it's really a, a population balance that needs to be tuned correctly to the individual. Agreed, agreed. Uh, and I think that sometimes I tend to think a little bit more or too sophisticated, but it may just be, the answer may just be a healthy balance of all the different groups. Uh, and when we see cancer or when we see even um, various hormonal conditions that is um, that we have find that typically uh, it may be started by a cascade of microbial population imbalances. And um, maybe if we look at society and use the human's uh, society as an analogy, I suppose the more diverse, um, um, the more people there are with diverse job abilities and job skills in society, then the more resilient that society can be because you have the engineers, you have the doctors and, um, and electricians and cooks, and they all can sort of buffer that society. But if you just have a human population of doctors, uh, then what about the people that provide the food, et cetera, et cetera. So sort of a way that I try to help myself think about it in terms of why we need a diverse uh, microbial population that balances everything. Yeah, that's that's really important. That the concerning part is that you know in developed countries this diversity is declining. So um, that's probably then very concerning. Uh, don't don't you think, Tom? I think so. I think so. And um, I actually, um, there is a service called American Gut. And so basically you take a little bit of your poop and you send a sample to them and they will actually um, try to get an idea of uh, how diverse um, your gut population is. And um, there is definitely a loss in diversity partially due to um, antibiotic use when we are young and when the micro microbiome plays a huge role in the development of our human immune system. And then I think everything just cascades from there. So it's really fascinating and I'm looking forward to seeing how the other groups, especially different groups, for example, the microbiologists working together with the physiologists, and uh, maybe this cross-collaboration will allow us to understand how the microbiome affects, say, mental illness um, um, that you just mentioned just now, uh, obesity, and everything else. Yeah, I think you mentioned something really important, you know, to have these cross um, you know, collaborations between the fields, um, 
um, that we need that more and and um, I don't know I think we might have probably a lot of data just not um, you know groups that put these together um, and I don't think there's a format I mean I think there are some grants now but maybe not enough for people to just focus on that, you know, go through data and put it into context. Um, maybe AIs will help too, but then we don't know what, why they came to these conclusions. So I think it's right now too risky to just give it to the AIs. Yeah, we have another interesting, um, I found another interesting throughout the week um, paper that is a little bit different. It's about uh, dental plugs, uh, ancient microbial um, natural um, products reconstructed from Neanderthal dental plugs. They use the dental calculus from Neanderthals and Paleolithic humans and reconstructed ancient microbial genes and engineered modern bacteria to produce their previously unknown metabolites. The approach will allow natural product research to add a new dimension and go back in time. And this is um, done by chemist Pierre Stalforth from the Hans Knoll Institute in Jena, Germany. He's leading the project and these metabolites play essential biological roles, but the chemical breakdown over time makes it difficult to study from those ancient sources. Now Selfor's team has used paleogenomic techniques to reconstruct ancient microbial genomes and resurrected the biosynthetic pathways. With this approach, researchers can access previously hidden structural and functional diversity and learn about the environments the microbes inhabited. Uh, the team recovered DNA from the samples um, that lived inside the mouse, mouths of Neanderthals and ancient humans. <coughs> and uh, they could reconstruct metagenomes of the ancient bacteria um, he uh, self-forward linkings the process to assembling a book from torn up pieces of each page. And the bacteria included several species of chlorobiome that shared one particular biosynthetic gene cluster that was responsible for the production of previously unknown class of metabolite. metabolite. Uh, the team then engineered this modern bacteria to reproduce and their chemical products, which they named paleofurans. And this work shows it's possible to take ancient genetic material and get functional information out of it that allows you to produce compounds. They demonstrate a completely new way of how we can think about biological diversity or functional diversity, not, not just from the perspective of what is today, but from the perspective of what has been in the past. Um, as with every technological innovation, it will shift the landscape quite considerably uh, of what you can do. Um, so yeah, I thought this was really interesting and this was published in Science recently and in the end of the article, there's a link to the paper. 
Yeah, I don't know if anyone wants to comment, but I thought it was really interesting and impressive. Well, it's fascinating to even, you know, to have a perspective into a Neanderthal <laughs> dental microbiome environment. Um, I wonder, though, if, you know, the ancient um, defenses that these microbes had if the targets of those defenses had evolved away from them and they would be less effective. It would be really interesting to see if there were insights and effective, you know, um, defenses these microbes had that uh, were lost but still would be novel, you know, um, make a novel comeback in, in, the, in a modern, you know, uh, microbial population that would be that's going to be really fascinating i think that's absolutely spot on uh, serena i think that's you know we could start mining for these sort of things uh we'll probably see more than one mechanisms hey hi guys i was just going to add a little bit there to um the ancient side of things i've been making bread and um, using ancient grains in my uh, in my cooking recently, making spelt and things like that. And there's some ancient grains that they took out of the um, well, they found inside someone in Pompeii, I think. Um, it's only 2,000 years old, but um, they've cultivated these, you know, the grain and they've started growing it, um, making flour and things like that. It's fantastic. It's just experimental at the moment, but it, it's it, you know, it's really good. You know, you've had it. Uh, and you know you, you don't need to have loads of slop with it. You know the bread's fantastic, but it, I'll tell you about that in the back channel. But it must be doing something to your gut. And uh, I suppose antibiotics strip it, don't they? But what about Crohn's and things like that? Were you covering that in this? Because is it, it you know it maybe it's a lifestyle thing as well. You know, people playing computer games and eating late at night and then laying with it on the guts. So I don't know. Hey, that's my bit. That's, thanks for having me in. That's a great conversation. Interesting. Yeah, thank you for sharing that with the ancient grains. I never tried it. Um, I know there are a few farms upstate here in New York that also that they are funded um, to basically keep older and you know I, i'm not sure i don't think it's ancient but like older apple types and different types of grain and like keep them alive um somewhere um i love to go to those farms but i never trade like of pompeii grain that that sounds fascinating and i agree lifestyle changes uh, modulates most likely a lot that also kids <clears throat> Don't play in dirt anymore, I guess, and um, and they're not outside as much anymore. People um, that you know the contact with different environments, natural environments, and you know people spray their lawns with chemicals and stuff like that, and all of that will for sure change the the microbiome. But it's if we can kind of um, res resurrect ancient ones I hope we can may hopefully spread uh, diversity you know just 
lost maybe a few decades ago again and and make people healthier and more you know like kind of a preventive care so um i mean it doesn't mean much if we breathe in all the the burned forests all year but anyways <laughs> <laughs> well it's an interest it's interesting to note that um there you know there's just a clear uh uh, in, industrial attempt from the food industry, you know, to, in terms of the, there's, there's a constant introduction of new, you know, sort of junk foods, um, with flavorants and all kinds of, uh, sub threshold chemicals that just really make you want to have more, but the, you know, the standardized ingredients, um, in these is, you know, certainly trending to more, you know, monolithic in terms of, you know, what's approved and cheap. And um, it's, it's interesting to, you know, study the impact that has on the microbiome and is it artificially reducing the, the diversity and uh, what, you know, what impact that may have on health. So revival of these ancient, um, you know, foods may help with in increasing that diversity in a, in a better balance of the microbiome, yeah. Well, um, what you mentioned, Serena and Katharina and um, James, um, it, it sort of made me suddenly realize that uh, that's something that maybe AI can, or, or high-level computing uh, to look at trends could help us. And um, we were talking about food, ancient grains. We were talking about um, the microbes that's uh, in the dental plaques. And we also have um, fermentable substrates um, and microbes in those fermented foods of the past. So if we actually can correlate using AI and uh, using multidiscipline approach to correlate um, human health, uh, the kind of illness that occurs with the kind of microbiome, uh, with the kind of microbes and the food that we eat. And then we look at what uh, the same thing for people maybe in the 1980s or 1960s or even during uh, as far back as we can go and correlate all those things. I wonder whether we might be able to come up with some correlative constant that we could zoom in on and study and maybe um, perturb in a healthy way with our current population or maybe with mice studies and whether we could actually come up with more things because we already have collected, as you said, Katerina, a lot of data. And so maybe the ability and the creativeness with which we fuse the data together, we might be able to come up with some appreciation of new interrelationships that we have never appreciated before. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, that I mean, that's that's fascinating to sort of ask, you know, the G GPTX to, you know, give me an 80s meal or a 60s meal <laughs> and, or, you know, work out a diet that uh, I might have, you know, previous generations may have had. 
and uh, assess the impact of that, whether there's a trend. <laughs> I think you can go in like in different villages. I think we can, you know, the the most positive group basically would probably be in those blue zones where people live still pretty traditionally. Um, and then you can compare this to, let's say, living in New York City or somewhere and, you know, and then compare the diets and all the, or I don't know, in some other place and compare all the lifestyles. As long as I think there are enough factors in there, you know, all the chemicals people use in their households uh, for a prolonged time, of course, not one time, but, you know, all the different detergents and whatnot and pesticides and and you know their habits like the movement and all this stuff would probably be the easiest if people have like an apple watch or something you know and then the 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 food list would probably also be pretty straightforward but i think people forget like probably air quality and chemicals they use and uh, quality of clothes also you know if you use if you have this throwaway, um, uh, I don't know, clothes fashion that has a lot of, you know, quite harmful chemicals and you're exposed to them all the time, especially, you know what I mean, this, this very poor quality diet products that leave your skin like blue and um, so mm. I think if we put all the data together, I think it would work, but we shouldn't forget these random things. I mean, I never uh, looked into primary literature on it, but I've always sort of heard um, that, you know, first world immunity relative to third world is, is, is somewhat compromised in the sense that, um, you know, some upbringings do, you know, the children still do play in the dirt and they still do get exposed very early. But also their diet is, is um, you know, is less industrial, perhaps. Um, and that has some bearing on their level of immunity. But um, I haven't really seen solid studies establishing that. It would be interesting to quantify that. When, you know, I was a mom really young. Um, I was 18 and then I went to these classes to educate myself or you know about upbringing taking care of babies and stuff and already back then um, there were these you know healthcare um, nursing professionals and you know social workers and even law professionals and blah blah that gave them classes about all kinds of stuff you know uh, first aid uh, you know what to buy what not to buy all this stuff uh, what to do when there's fever and what they definitely said for little kids rather get secondhand clothes because they have been washed a bunch of times and the skin to to uh, body weight ratio you know is that if you use these you know <clears throat> chemicals and and these dyes a lot dark dyed uh, stuff on the skin of babies for example it's really, really harmful, um, you know, and babies in the U.S., uh, there was a study, I have to find it, they have a 
thousand fold like in the fat and they have uh, quite a lot of amount of fat I think I have a thousand fold more chemicals um, that were found um, than you know babies I don't know in a small village in Greece or whatever um, or you know where where's less industrialized I don't know where they compared it to but it was a really you know big difference so I think these studies are difficult in that way that I think those details are, are really important but I've been going on and on about this for too long. Yeah I mean just coming in you know listening to everything um, that has been discussed um, I feel after talking about all these things, there's been so much progress that's made in each individual um, science specialty. And uh, I think that we could um, get more, even more significant findings if we get a lot of uh, multidiscipline um, um, approaches. Because the reason why I say that is because um, I came, uh, I used to be in the microbiology department and now I'm working in the um, civil engineering department where they are interested in wastewater. And when I was reading some articles um, that was just recently published, they found something that was really obvious to us many, many years ago. And I think vice versa too, I would say, share something with the engineers and they would actually say, well, we knew this, you know, a decade ago. So it seems to me that um, if we have enough cross-disciplinary um, collaborations, um, we might actually solve a lot of problems that are still plaguing us right now. Yeah, and then actually use the knowledge. I think that's a big issue too, that there are a lot of, great studies out there that show a lot of really important things but then everyone just ignores them and it doesn't get implemented in reality and you know and practical changes and how we do things what we use what we shouldn't use and you know that there's a huge lack in that so yeah but I agree Tom I totally agree I guess that's our role uh, in Clubhouse is to um, publicize and share the information as much as possible and uh, uh, we might catalyze something. <laughs> it is funny on that occasionally we get into rants about, you know, research funding and, you know, just to follow on to your point, you know, there there probably is a number of um, you know, cross fertilizations that it, it, it's a shame that there aren't, you know, multidisciplinary bets. Like if, you know, if there's a, a, a model that would, you know, host these cross disciplinary, um, interactions and, you know, fund some of the top few I ideas, just, you know, the bet being there's discoveries there that are, you know, developable and, um, 
might be a lucrative business model or investment model. But research funding is always a peeve. <laughs> the irony is, you know, when uh, the COVID, I, I obviously couldn't get bread for loving the money around. So I started making my own bread and uh, obviously other people clicked on and all the bread flour had gone. So all that was left was things like spelt and a few other things. And I was like, what's this? You know, and it's, it was especially, you know, specialty stuff. And I, it was fantastic. But the point was, it was anything left on the shelf. <laughs> but it ended up, um, now you can't, you can't get it anymore. You know, all the shops are empty for, for, for you know, it's, it's, it's well used now. So and that, literally that's what, a year or two years, and it's just flying off the shelf now in the UK. What's this? Uh, oh, anyway. Addictive behaviors, yeah, let's get on to that. Oh, yeah, and, you know, I want, you know, that here in New York City, um, when COVID was going on, they would give out food baskets to people with vegetables and all kinds of things. And a lot of people around me told me, I don't know what to do with this. You know, people don't didn't know anymore. <laughs> how to cook and what those vegetables are like they had they would let them rot like just look it up i mean use your phone and google it and use those vegetables but anyways <laughs> yeah so um i thought this was i have like two i mean i have a bunch of articles i have way too many as usual but there's, um, there, I thought this was really interesting. Then there's like a fish one that I found that was pretty cute and, and the artificial leaf one that I thought was really interesting too. But just to mention this really quick, if in case, you know, this could be helpful for people, uh, Kutozempic help curb addictive behaviors. Um, so, um, Zimaglutide um, and other drugs in its class are widely known for their role in managing type 2 diabetes and suppressing appetite. They may also prove helpful one day in curbing certain addictive behaviors well, uh, like alcohol use and smoking, according to this research. The preclinical research has shown promising results and endocrinologists and patients have described anecdotally reduced cravings for alcohol, shopping, and even coffee. The consistency that I'm hearing from all across patient groups is gain of control, whereas previously there was a loss of control. So, um, yeah, I think that's really interesting, uh, this research, because <clears throat> it started by a doctor kind of noticing these you know, what patients tell them additionally to what is just, you know, about diabetes going on. That's why I thought, you know, what Tom mentioned is really important to be in the disciplinary, but then also, you know, to note uh, different information that might not at the first sight be important, but still note it and then kind of make sense of it is also really important. So um, all of a the sudden, they were able to step back and say, oh, well, I had the shopping phenomenon that was going on, gambling addiction or alcoholism. All of a sudden, it just stopped. <clears throat> However, the precise mechanism behind it um, 
and other GLP-1 agonist effects on behaviors like smoking, drinking are not well understood. And researchers are in the early stages of studying the use of this class of drugs for addictive behaviors in humans. And experts have said unresolved questions about potential addiction indication for semaglutide should elicit attention and caution from prescribers. <coughs> semaglutide modulates the release of insulin via pancreas, which is how it helps provide people with type 2 diabetes control over their blood glucose. But it also works in the brain via GLP-1. If we look at where the GLP-1 receptor is in the brain, it is really widely distributed. So it is in many centers of the brain and nuclei that would be associated with these types of behaviors. <coughs> Sorry about my cough. But the challenge we have is we have the anecdotal reports which are pretty widespread. We have lots of clinicians reporting this and many people on social media reporting the experience. But we don't have our definitive randomized control clinical targets trials. Uh, so over the years, animal studies have shown sim similar reactions uh, to other GLP-1 agonists like uh, liraglutide, which suppresses or reduced alcohol consumption in rats and African vervet monkeys. Studies about exanitide um, and, op and opioid-related behaviors had mixed results, although it did decrease nicotine intake in mice. <clears throat> So, um, well, Dr. said the mechanisms behind um, the effect like this are not very well understood. Um, one may have to do with dopamine availability since GLP-1 will suppress either the amount of dopamine or dopamine transporters, implying indirectly that somehow we are not getting as much pleasure or not getting as much reward because dopamine is induced by many of these substances that we take. Another a uh, neurotransmitter that's affected is GABA um, that showed in, was shown in another study. So um, in, in this study, we showed that the semaglutide is hitting some of the key factors related to addiction in our brain, such as dopamine and GABA, legio told. Uh, so it's another piece of the pie, another proof of evidence that the semaglutide is working on those systems in the brain that we know are important for addiction. He is now working on a protocol for a randomized controlled trial that will look at semaglutide and alcohol use in humans and collaborating with Oklahoma State University on a similar study. So yeah, I think it's really interesting and notable that um, it kind of came out of noticing what else patients are, you know, telling the doctors um, unrelated directly to their diabetes symptoms. I can't help but think there's a, just an absolute windfall in off-label prescription market for all kinds of, you know, treatments. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's underway and it hasn't escaped their attention. And, you know, on those off-label applications, they, you know, they don't always know or have to know the mechanism of how it works. Um, and, you know, and sometimes that ends in class action lawsuits, of course, but I imagine the manufacturer is, is doing some deep planning. <laughs> I'll be surprised if little boutique 
Ozempic treatment centers were start to pop up. Yeah, I mean, especially on alcohol use, I mean, NIH wants to find something uh, because, you know, it's, I mean, there's not too much innovation, I guess, going on because I get actually notifications of, you know, apply for alcohol abuse or um, alcohol use um, grants, but, um, but then the problem is, as a, a speaker the other day also mentioned, you have the NIH program officers that really want innovative research, um, and and then you, but they don't decide, right? They make these programs, they invite people to apply, and they really cheer those people on that have really new ideas. But then uh, you have the committees of researchers that kind of then have to decide, you know, thousands and thousands of grant applications, the few that get funding, and then you go probably to the lowest risk one. So that's, I think, kind of the problem of innovation we currently have in the system we have, but also what would be the alternative, basically. Um, I think Switzerland is trying a just lottery um, based on a research they did on basically metadata, what what becomes successful, you know, is there a system, can we figure it out beforehand? And I think there was this huge talk and uh, the study basically said, no, we can't, <laughs> like, there's no way we can predict what will be a successful project and what won't, so. I think they decided to try out the lottery system, but I have to look into that if that's still going on or not, but anyways. I wonder if they're considering some of these large language models to help with grant evaluation, train them on the, what the program officers actually said and evaluate the grants based on how consistent they would be to the mission. That might help, you know, the overwhelming i you know i've sort of, i've sort of seen this you know these reviews grant reviews and how overwhelming for individual reviewers it is and you know you could see how the the whole psychology of fear and conservative and low risk comes into play but maybe ai can help with that I mean, to be honest, I don't think they can do any much more harm, but that's maybe also very unfair <laughs> to say. <laughs> Give the humans a break. Evaluate these 400 grants. Rank them on program officer criteria. Okay. Um, I, I don't know. So there is, you know, uh, a few more. I don't know how long people still want to go on, but I have like at least two more that I think are kind of cool uh, to share. Um, maybe it's just me, but I thought this was really interesting. Uh, this was in the news. Um, you know, we always think we're kind of very special. 
<laughs> and um, uh, you know, the they showed this this mysterious species buried their dead and carved symbols a hundred thousand years before humans did. <clears throat> Researchers have uncovered evidence that members <clears throat> sorry of a mysterious archaic uh, human species buried their dead and carved symbols on cave walls long before the earliest evidence of burials by modern humans. The brains belonging to the extinct species known as Homo naledi, uh, I hope I'm saying that right, uh, not, I'm sorry, were around one-third the size of a modern human brain. The revelations could change the understanding of human evolution, because until now, such behaviors only have been associated with larger brain Homo sapiens and Neanderthals. The findings are detailed in three studies that have been accepted for publication in the journal eLife and preprints of the papers are available on BioArchive. Fossils belonging to Homo naledi were first discovered in the Rising Star Cave system in South Africa in 2013. <coughs> and the cave system is part of South Africa's Cradle of Humankind, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Um, where the scientists have found fossils of multiple ancient human ancestor species, remains that are helping to unlock the story of human evolution. Paleoanthropologist and National Geographic explorer, resident Dr. Lee Berger and his team of underground astronauts have continued their work in the extensive dangerous caves to better understand the extinct hominids and ancient human ancestors. Now the research team has discovered the remains of Homo naledi adults and children and were laid to rest in a fetal position within cave depressions and covered with soil. The burials are older than any known Homo sapiens burial by at least 100,000 years. During the work to identify the cave burials, the scientists also found a number of symbols engraved on the cave walls, which I estimate to be 241,335,000 years old, but they want to continue their testing for more precise dating. The symbols include deeply carved hashtag-like cross hatchings and other geometric shapes. Similar symbols found in other caves were carved by early Homo sapiens 80,000 years ago and Neanderthals 60,000 years ago, and were thought to have been used as a way to record and share information. These recent findings suggest intentional burials, the use of symbols and meaning-making activities by Homo naledi. It seems an inevitable conclusion that in combination they indicate that this small brain species of ancient human relatives was performing complex practices related to death. That would mean uh, not only humans are not unique in the development of symbolic practices, but may not have even invented such behaviors. Yeah, it, it goes on, you know, how they, you know, how hard it is to get uh, to those ca through those caves and get this. <clears throat> and how they found them, and kind of the history um, and uh, carvings on the walls within the grave. Within one of the graves is a tool-shaped rock buried next to the end of a Homo naledi adult. Within a passage above the burials in an antechamber is a wall covered with rock engravings. 
The deeply carved geometric shapes appears on dolomite rock walls that reach 4.5 to 4.7 on Mohl's hardness scale, which helps researchers assess the scratch resistance of minerals. Dolomite is halfway to diamonds in terms of hardness, which means it could have taken an extreme amount of time and effort to carve into the walls. The team believes that Homo naledi and not Homo sapiens are responsible for the carvings because there is no evidence that humans have ever been inside these caves. Homo naledi was able to see what they were doing inside the caves by using fire. There is evidence spread throughout the caves including soot, charcoal and burnt bone to show that they were actively setting fires. Both the barriers and the symbols imply that Homo naledi was capable of engaging in meaningful behaviors. The meaning of the symbols is unclear and researchers can't say whether they were used as a type of language or communication within the species. What we can say is that these are intentionally made geometric designs that had meaning for naledi. That means they spent a lot of time and effort and risked their lives to engrave these things in these places where they buried bodies. The Naledi findings suggest that larger brains can't be the only connection with complex behavior that researchers once assumed related only to humans. The challenge here then is that we now know that Homo Naledi, in addition to Homo sapiens and Neanderthals and Denisovans and, other, and a few others were engaging in the kind of behavior that we even just a few decades ago thought was unique to us. That means we need to rethink the timing of fire use, of meaning making, and of the burial of the dead in Homini history. <clears throat> yeah, that's really fascinating um, how it, it keeps pushing back and diversifying these things that we, you know, we thought were unique earlier. I, I mean, the 100,000 years is an interesting number. Um, I understand that, uh, you know, sapien language was more around 60,000 years or so in the rise of trade. Um, but fire was more like 500 with uh, Homo erectus. So, you know, sapiens never even knew a time without fire. But to hear that um, this other species, Naledi, um, must have had some, you know, notion of um, maybe early notions or, or perhaps even pioneering notions of afterlife or, you know, somehow respectful uh, for the dead ceremonies with corresponding hieroglyphs. That's just really fascinating. Yeah, I agree. And that maybe, you know, we were not the ones that had first these ideas that we copied it maybe, you know, from others. It's also interesting and from others that had way small and way smaller brains. Um, yeah, I think so, you know, I would assume that they were highly connected, those brains and would be, I mean, it's really a pity that we cannot have a sample of those brains anymore <laughs> because I would like, you know, to see how you know how they, they, their brain structure must have used their space very efficiently to um, to have this you know very conscious 
um, deep behaviors, basically. Maybe there was a lot of glia going on. <laughs> well, and, and you know, su such emotional attachments and and concepts of continuity perhaps um, draw heavily on the basal ganglia and limbic systems rather than, you know, and don't really need a enlarged cortex or um, the glia is interesting because that that is a apparently accelerated change in in the glial structures is is something that does show up um, more pronounced in sapiens even relative to neanderthals so, um, but yeah this is all really cool to get such a, a broader picture of our origins and you know how not so unique certain behaviors are yeah good I swimming, thought, so. oh yeah please go ahead sorry just good swimmers that's what i think how deep are these caves i mean they're underwater i mean is that is that how they <clears throat> sorry i haven't read the article but is that how they worked out it was a hundred thousand years ago like the sea level rise uh, plus they must have had something harder than diet harder than this, what they were cutting so they, if that stuff was diamond they were cutting into or, or as hard as diamond they must have had something intriguing hmm. yeah i think they found next to the hand of one of the one of these cutting devices and and, and then the dating you do that um you know, you can date that based on the carbon uh, imprint, basically, of the time. But I think Serena does a way better job of explaining this than me. Yeah, they can independently date the samples. But uh, so they did actually find one of the tools, the carving tools. I was, gonna, I was thinking about that. That's yeah, cool. I think I was reading that that they found it next to the hand of one of the, and how deep they are. They mentioned that uh, so. They have mapped over two point five miles of the cave so far, which has a vertical depth of three hundred twenty eight feet or one hundred meters, and expand for more than six hundred fifty six feet two hundred meters in length. Um, so that's what they uncovered so far. But um, the cave system includes deadly step, steep drops and tiny passageways, a tunnel measuring th uh, 131 feet 40 meters long and 9.8 inches 25 centimeters across, requiring the researchers to belly crawl their way through. Um, yeah, in the article, they mention a lot of the features. You know, it, it's way longer than what I was reading. Um, yeah, and pictures of the samples they found and where um, one of the child is there in the picture. Then the, they have a picture of the carvings in the wall. Yeah, it's really interesting. I recommend. And then they have a picture of the tool-shaped rock that uh, was buried near or clutched, clutched in the hand of a young teenage homo naledi child buried in the hill antechamber. 
the arrows point to possible serrations and lines that are possible evidence of modification of use of wear and the edge of the rock. So, yeah, they found one of these rocks. If that was really used for exact that, I don't know, but this was... Did you say the, the rock was found near the hand of a teenage girl, my lady? Yeah, I That's think, kind of yeah. cool. It's amazing. I mean, it, what did they say? Uh, 300 something thousand years. That's fascinating. I thought it was really amazing. Yeah, 241 to 335,000 years old. Between. Wow. Yeah, and fire, like remains of fires they made and stuff. So impressive. Um, it's so interesting. I mean, um, I I don't know. I mean, nowadays, if they would have survived until now, we would have killed them all probably. But um, would be kind of interesting and cool not to have met like all these different human-like, you know, type of people. I don't know. I think it would be so fascinating. Yeah, I imagine our ancestors wouldn't have always been kind. <laughs> it's terrible to say, but we come from a checkered past. Yeah, exactly. And then another thing I thought that was really interesting. I just have to find the paper. Ah, there, that we are not so special. <laughs> I don't know why I like this, but um, that's the last one I think we'll share today. It's kind of, sorry, didn't work. Uh, it's the fish that can recognize itself. You know, I keep complaining about the stupid mirror test. Oh, fish can recognize. Okay, yes. cool. <laughs> I keep saying the stupid mirror test is just not appropriate for different type of anatomies, you know. But here we go. A fish can recognize themselves in photos by identifying their own face that he claims. Lena Russer um, were first familiarized with their face by being given, given a mirror. Next, they were shown a photo of themselves with a dot of dye on their neck. Then they tried to clean their own neck, showing they recognized their face. Despite not having the biggest memories in the animal kingdom, it turns out that fish are more intelligent than previously thought. Researchers at Osaka Metropolitan University in Japan have discussed that the cleaner russet fish Labroids dimidiatus is able to recognize itself on a photo. The species is known to attack unfamiliar fish in its territory, but when presented with an image of its own face on a stranger's fish body, it did not react to it. This suggests that the cleaner russet clocked the image as being one of itself through 
just the facial features and so does not see it as a threatening stranger. This study is the first to demonstrate that fish have an internal sense, sense of self. <clears throat> so yeah, there's the pictures uh, of what they did. I thought this was, um, this article is it's fairly short, but you can go ahead and, and, and go to the actual research article. I thought it was really neat. <laughs> <laughs> this is funny, but it fell for a deep fake. <laughs> <laughs> a picture of itself, its own face on another fish. It didn't react to it, but it, but it, it passed the red dot test and tried to clean its face. That is cool. What are we eating now, huh? <laughs> plants have emotion, like you know, plants, fungi have like electrical activity and you know, cry when they are thirsty and the fish recognize <laughs> themselves. <laughs> I think all there's left to do is like to we're, starve. <laughs> we're, we're brutal creatures. <laughs> but that's, that's really cool. I, I, I wouldn't have imagined, but okay. Some fish have a sense of self, at least in a recognition, at least a mechanism. Well, that, that implies some pretty deep connectual, um, conceptual connections, right? Recognition of your face, seeing something wrong with it, and then attempting to clean it. That's um, surprising out of a fish, no doubt. Well, let me make it worse. <laughs> This oxytocin study <laughs> also looks at fish and um, they have been um, looking at um, how fish copy emotions just like humans and the responsible molecule is oxytocin. When an individual flashes a smile at us, it's natural for us to reciprocate with a similar expression. Conversely, if we are in the company of someone experiencing anger or stress, we often inadvertently adopt these negative feelings. This innate inclination to mirror the emotional states of those around us is known as emotional contagion. Uh, this is rudimentary empathy has been wired into our brains over millennia and its purpose is fairly straightforward. Anyways, danger, blah, blah. Uh, but this behavior is not exclusive to humans. New data from the Instituto Gulbenkian de Ciencia, it's in Lisbon, um, confirm that the mechanisms we use to synchronize emotions go back to the most ancient group of vertebrates, fish. In their most recent work of the IGC team led by Rui Oliveira, tried to understand if similarly to humans and other mammals, zebrafish need oxytocin to adopt um, others' emotions. The experiment they carried out showed that when fish similarly to those found in nature see a shoal in the stress, they mirror their behavior. On the other hand, fish with genetic alterations, either on oxytocin or its receptors, keep swimming normally, even when they see their conspecifics in the stress. This shows that this molecule is necessary to spread fear, for instance, when one of the show's members is hurt. 
but how can we be sure that fish are recognizing fear in their specifics and not simply copying their behavior? We realize these observers approach the distressed shoal even when it gets back to swimming normally, whereas mutated fish prefer to be close to the group that had always been in a neutral state. This means that via oxytocin, zebrafish decode and mimic the um, emotional state behind the neighbor's shoals movements and start behaving in a similar way. It is impressive that fish get close to the stress shoal, given that in nature this could mean that the predator is nearby, although it puts them at risk. Being approached by um, conspecifics could help the group recover from stress. These other oriented acts are well described in mammals where they are also regulated by oxytocin. But oxytocin is not the only common factor between fish and humans regarding emotional contagion. Uh, to recognize and match emotions, zebrafish use areas of the brain that are equivalent to some of those that humans also use for this purpose. Um, this makes the, these fish the perfect model to study the social behavior and its neural mechanisms. And yeah, anyways, um, it's a really interesting paper by a colleague of mine. So yeah, I recommend reading it and it makes it even worse now. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's so cool, I, I mean, I could see the survival advantage of a group emotional response, but that oxytocin was, was behind that. That's, that's kind of, that's really cool too. Really cool. I've got a nip off now, but fantastic room. Thank you for educating me tonight. No, no, no problem. Well, thank you. Yeah, we love educating us together. You know, I wouldn't probably read all these different articles. <laughs> I wouldn't have to come up with stuff for today. So yeah, you're making me you know, Yeah, it's 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 great stuff. Thank you, Katarina. Yeah, thanks for being here. It was really fun. Lara, come come up. The last few minutes. Hi. How are Hi, you guys. Doing? Hey. I just I just shared in the chat this article because I'd heard about this team, um, Lee Berger. He's a very controversial but well-known um, paleontologist. I I had heard about him in a podcast. I was, I'm like listening to on prehistory, and it was like it's like a rock like they should make a movie out of this. It's like a rock band type of uh, like a rock star type of um, renegade type of group he assembled. Like he was already well known. He already made like this other discovery right in the area of South Africa. And then he comes across his other find, right? And it, and the if you look at the article, they show you the cave system, how narrow it is. Like it's just like it's literally like a movie. And um and then he was like, how are we going to get? And you know the 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 race is on, right? Because he wants to get it before anyone else gets to it and all that stuff. And he had all these suppositions of what it's going to be. And then he puts an ad in Facebook because you have to be really, really skinny, right? <laughs> and, and so he ends up being like this all-female team and they became like famous, like semi-famous in the area or whatever. And then he had all these other methods that were so unique, right? Because um, I think that the article mentions that the normal in this paleontology, uh, what, uh, whatever uh, subsector, um, it's regular. It's 15 years from the time of the paper to the time of whatever publication. I don't know, whatever. But it's like a long, long cycle. And he just basically smashed the cycle and he just took it. And he was hiring not the 
the uh, the well-known, you know, whatever stalwarts of the industry. He was going to like the PhD postdoc people because they were like had all the technology. They were with it kind of thing. And he would like upload the um, he would just get to the fossils and upload the fossils onto a, like an open open source database. So the public could like download it into like um, what do you call it? Uh, 3D scanners to like print their own semi-human humanoid. And the humanoid in the article, it sounds wild, that humanoid. It's like it like had the it had the arms and the 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 hands of an ape, right? Curved, but the the legs of a human. Like it just it just seems like a complete amalgamation of like a, a monkey and a, you know, whatever ape or in a human. Like wild, right? Yeah, that's crazy. I love it. Well, thank you, Laura, for sharing this. This sounds amazing. I will have to look into that more. And uh, yeah, it's it's really cool that like he he lets people you know participate. I think we could solve a lot of things by having the civic uh, science, you know, solving things going on. So that's really cool. Thank you for sharing that, Laura. No worries. I, I just love the whole component. It just, it just sounds like such a fascinating story. I forget. I can't see it in the article. I was just trying to look what the name they named the that team, the all female team something. I forget what they named them. I don't know. I would as a kid, you know, it's really interesting. As a kid, I always thought oh, I will do this stuff. You know, I watched all this discovery of caves and um, ocean caves stuff. And I always said, oh, I want to do this one day. And now I, I think I wouldn't do this ever, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so Poor guy. The, the, he said he lost 55 pounds so he can get in, he can fit through the, <laughs> this underground <laughs> cave. That's dedication. Yep, seriously. I mean, we should all support that. So uh, let's give it a bunch of clicks. <laughs> I don't know who wants to support it. But but it's amazing that they did that. I mean, this is a really groundbreaking discovery. I mean, I'm glad he is so persistent. I mean, they could have gotten stuck and died. I mean, they didn't know where they were going, right? It's just wild. Like, that's dedication and, and to, to, to find this treasure trove of human history. I mean, amazing. <laughs> I hope he gets some sort of award for this and um, because yeah, it's it's amazing. Thank you for sharing. This makes the story even so much cooler. It was already cool. Right. <laughs> but this is, you know, over the top. Made for TV movie, they gotta make it. Great stuff. Yeah, for sure a book and then they can study with that money more caves and hopefully a movie too. And that money can can result in more studies. So let's see what who else will out <laughs> outperform us in history of inventing things. <laughs> and I can just imagine the responses of all these Star Wars Star Wars scientists. Right? They're like you know esteemed. They're like they're so pissed off. All these like women come out of nowhere <laughs> and they go and they start the they do the fight and they're like what the hell? Who is this person? What what's going on here? <laughs> Show them how it's done.
amazing. I re yeah, I have to watch it and I have to learn about them. And it's it's really courage to do that also. So yeah, great for them. I mean, it's really well deserved. Um, so you know the achievement. So that's really a happy story. I think it's a perfect story to end on a very happy note for women, for science, you know, for kind of rogue science. <laughs> he called them the underground astronauts. That's, that's what they were called. Yeah, yeah. That's also <laughs> a really cool name. He's really talented with this stuff, I guess. So, yeah, that's really great. So, perfect, Lara. Um, this made me really happy. And um, I was actually in a kind of very annoyed mood, you know, with all the bad air. And I'm thinking, what world will I live Will my kids live in in the future with all this forest upstate left to burn? But this made me happy. So thank you, Lara. And thanks, everyone, for staying here, listening, uh, adding comments. And yeah, come back um, if you like this kind of stuff. And um, we'll have another room uh, with Dr. Chen. He's looking for... Um, oxygen abundance in interstellar gas uh, and he's using optical and infrared spectra to study that um, and uh, we'll have more rooms next week we'll have I haven't planned much for July until now like one speaker room because we'll be traveling I'm not sure how it will work with speakers but for sure we'll have the science newsrooms uh, going on so um, yeah Happy evening, happy morning, wherever you are. Thanks for listening. Thanks for coming. And um, yeah, I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, Thanks everyone. the room. Bye. Thank Thanks. You.